0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the province is now considering yet another stay-at-home order after the Ford government got some harsh criticism on its guidelines and leadership, has public trust been eroded? We'll talk about that. A team of doctors at Hamilton's McMaster University is preparing to screen for a rare antibody that could cause those blood clots linked to AstraZeneca vaccine. Dr. Isaac Nasey from McMaster joins us to talk about that. And Ontario is considering the prospect of full independent online learning for secondary students all the other issues applied by online learning, what about the impact it's going to have on students? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we were told and as the Premier has hinted at for the last little while, in an effort to put a dent in the rising number of COVID-19 cases and variants, uh, it appears the province is going to consider another stay-at-home order. Premier Doug Ford made the warning earlier this week. Global's Tina Trajani has the details.
1: We've heard it before and we will hear it again. Stay home and only leave for essentials. Global News has learned the Ford government is looking at another stay-at-home order with some adjustments. Sources indicate big-box stores such as Costco would be allowed to sell essentials only. Everything else would be taped off so that new garden hose or sweatshirt... We'll have to wait. As well, non-essential businesses would have to close, but they would be able to offer curbside pickup. Although schools have been closed in a few areas, including Toronto and Peel, they would be permitted to stay open everywhere else. We've also learned the order would kick in tomorrow and last for four weeks. Now, everything will be laid out at some point this afternoon. Cabinet will be finalizing the details at a meeting scheduled for later this morning. Tina Trudjani, Global News.
0: Well, uh, this feels like Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. I mean, you know, the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, And I'm not so sure that we're going to get the same result or any different results. I mean, the Premier, this is a repeat of exactly the same sort of stuff that he did about four or five months ago what kind of an impact is this going to have and how is this going to be accepted or not accepted as the case might be uh, by the residents here in Ontario. Please uh, pleased to welcome Laura Babcock back to the program to talk about this. She of course is the president of Power Group. Uh, Laura, great to have you back with us today. Thanks so much for the time. My pleasure, Bill. Do you, do you get this sense again that this is deja vu? I mean my immediate reaction when I heard that this was probably what was going to happen today is, uh, why didn't you do this four months ago when the doctors that are in charge of giving you information asked them to do it then?
1: precisely. In fact, it brings to mind a particular moment in a press conference, I think back in February, when uh, they put out the case of what the third wave would look like if there wasn't sort of drastic measures to to course correct. And I, I think a reporter said, so this sounds like a disaster. Are we reading this right? And they're like, yep, pretty much. I mean, so this isn't news and it's not a surprise. And what has been a surprise is this whiplash of policy that we've been all living through with this government. If you think about the fact that they were just they were just telling restaurants that they could increase their indoor dining capacity and all kinds of restaurants were investing in the patio season and then they turn around and say nope, that's all gone. When you think about the fact that they were just saying that schools are safe. And at the very same time, you've got a medical officer making news in Toronto saying, no, we're shutting down schools. I mean, it was the same graphic on the same TV news coverage. Uh, one, the premier saying they're safe, and the, and the medical professional saying, actually, no, not in the city, they're not. So, I mean, we are, we are in a state of chaos, but we shouldn't be, not because these new variants aren't scary or this isn't difficult. We all know it's difficult, but we're in a state of chaos because, We've had, unfortunately, leadership, and I will put this on the provincial level, leadership that has not wanted to take those tougher actions in a concise and clear way that would have made us in a much better position than we are now. Biden right now in the U.S. is saying that every American will be able to access the vaccine ahead of schedule by middle of this month. And what are we looking at here in Canada? September? I mean, it's just crazy that we're so far behind. And and this is really an issue bill around Not having the courage to lead and to demand what was necessary when it was, trying to be popular, trying to make everyone a little bit happy, and what's resulted in is a very dangerous situation that is once again going to rip our kids out of school, hurt businesses, and cause a tremendous amount of mental health problems.
0: And and you're right. I mean, there's more than enough blame. I mean, a pox on both their houses, both the federal and provincial governments. And by the way, not just Ontario, but other provincial governments too, have really screwed this thing up. And and I I agree with you totally. I mean, the vaccine rollout has has been an abomination. I think what do we get? 14 percent of the population that have been vaccinated, and that's you know, come on, people. But but that aside, and I I don't mean to to minimize that because that is important, Laura. Uh, The provincial government, as you stated, is in charge of the of the, the protocol here. They're the ones that set the standard. What can be open what can't be open and he has received uh, advice and i'll use that term advisedly uh, from a number of doctors and i know that because i've had them on this show in the last six months that said look at he's not doing this properly he's not doing this the way we want him to do he's doing half measures and nothing's going to happen and that's exactly what the result has been we're not anywhere further ahead than we're supposed to be because he as you say has watered down just about every piece of advice he's been given the problem we've got now is as bad as the pandemic is is a lot of trust in our elected officials and that's that's dangerous
1: well it is uh, so for many levels so yes in terms of the procurement of the vaccines, you know trudeau was lauded around the world for getting the most per capita purchased up front but when did they roll in what were the delays how did they get to the provinces all of that they could have done a better job federally provincially though the messaging has been a real crisis because I don't think if you look at the polls nationally, people think that the federal leadership has lost the public trust. There's some frustration around it. But if you were, I think, to ask Ontarians today, do you trust the leadership coming from Lecce, the Minister of Education, Christine Elliott in, in Health and the Premier? I think Ontarians would say, you know what? No, because every time that they say we're, we're going to do something, they hinted it for days They raise our level of anxiety, then they come out with a message, then they water it down by bringing so many exceptions that it's like a Swiss cheese policy. There's a hole in everything. You can get around anything you want to get around, and people take advantage of those opportunities, and then you have them come out and chastise people for taking advantage of the opportunities that they themselves allowed people to have. And so it's almost as though they're, they're blaming the public for seizing on the, on the loopholes and the, the holes in their strategy. I mean, you can't, they, they say open patios, and then the premier drives by and say, oh, there's people at patios. That must be the reason. Shut down the patios. Oh, you know what? You can have the malls. But wait a sec, why did people go to the malls? You know, bat on them for going to the malls and doing their wander around. I'm so tired of these anecdotes from the premier that are not science-based, that he's, it's almost as though he's observing this instead of leading it. And, and the fact that he's chastising people for the very things that he allowed them to do. I mean, we're, we're adults in this province. We're, we're smart people. If you said to us, don't go anywhere for a month, everything is locked down, only the essentials, order to your house, whatever, we would do it. But as long as we're given these outs, as long as we're given these opportunities to find ways around what we don't want to do, we're going to take them. That's human nature, and it's his job to stop observing this from the sidelines and start leading this province. People are dying. This is not political or partisan. This is about leadership and life and death.
0: And by the way, to underscore your last point there, I mean, yesterday, of course, there was another media conference among uh, hospital leaders in the Hamilton area, Rob McIsaac from Hamilton Health Sciences, the folks from St. Joe's, a number of people uh, were involved in in that. And basically, they've they've outlined the crisis situation. I mean, I I ignore some of the stuff, most of the stuff I see in social media, especially the deniers that say, oh, come on, this is all BS. Uh, There is no impact on on ICU units. Yeah, there is. Uh, They're setting up a temporary hospital right across from General Hospital right now because they don't have enough beds for the people that are being admitted with COVID, we are in a crisis situation. And and I, I I concur with you. I blame the provincial government for this. They were told this was going to be the result if they kept doing things in half measures. And here we are. And you're right. I mean, and I'm sure he's going to do it again today. He blames everyone else except his government for this. So you guys aren't doing what we're told. You guys, it's it's always somebody else's fault. The government's got to own up to this and take some heat for exactly what they have not been doing, according to the experts that we've talked to.
1: Well, literally, his last two rants at the public were based on the public following his policy. He let the patios be open, and then he said that the patios are causing the problem. He let the stores and the malls be open, and then he said that the people wandering around Yorkdale are causing the problem. No, actually, they are following the leader who is allowing them to have this range of activities that make no sense. Anybody who saw the lineups outside IKEA, anybody who sees the big box stores in those parking lots, knows that if you're going to allow people access to tangibly shop for stuff, they're going to do it because there's very little else that we can do. You know, and people are going to go out and do it. You have to shut down what needs to be shut down in order to weather this. Can you imagine, Bill, if we were having this conversation and there wasn't freezers full of vaccine available? I mean, can you imagine how dire it would be I mean, at least I think we're in a worse stage in the pandemic than we've ever been, with the exception that we have the solution sitting in freezers. The question is, does this government know how to pivot away from this sort of artificial age based strategy and actually get the vaccines in the arms of the people who are still going to be part of working in this new stay at home lockdown, the essential workers? Are they going to get them to those neighborhoods? Are they going to get them to the marginalized? Are they going to get them to the racialized communities that are bearing more of the burden of this? Or are they going to keep saying 70, 60, 50 as though, you know, there isn't these other realities happening? We know where the rise in infections are. We know where the virus is doing its most horrible work. We need to get in there. And this premier better say today that they are pivoting and they are finding a way to get the vaccines to the people who need it the most. So that we can recover the other places that have done this better, who have had better leadership, that w- leadership that was more resolute, that was more evidence-based, that was more clear. They are actually reopening. Their economies are doing well. People have found a way to get back to some semblance of life. What are we doing in one of the wealthiest, healthiest countries in the world this far behind? you got to blame it on the leadership
0: do they not pay attention to the science because the science is available i mean i'm sure you saw these numbers the other day uh about hotspots. because that was one of the things i went off about yesterday is you know you're not even putting the vaccine program in the places where it's needed most i I use the analogy i said if you're fighting a fire and you find out that there's a hot spot you direct your resources over there and say whoa let's get that and and make sure that it doesn't consume everything else we're not doing that with the vaccine the numbers we saw yesterday indicated that there are two major hotspots uh in the hamilton area Areas, for instance. One is in the downtown core, and I, I saw your stuff on social media about this yesterday, too. Of course, the, the, the pharmacy program in Hamilton, they didn't have any downtown locations, even though that's a hot spot. The other one, much to my surprise, is Ancaster in my neighborhood right now and who would have thunk it so what are they going to do about it what are they going to do about it are they going to direct resources to these hot spots which is what they should be doing or are they just going to carry on and say no no let's keep doing the same thing i mean you know that's the old thing about the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a better result we're not getting a better result Laura.
1: and it's a quality in a leader to be able to say okay based on what we knew when we knew it we did this strategy these were our tactics Now we know something different, and we have new information. We know of 10 postal codes that have the biggest issues. We know that the new variant is taking perfectly healthy people in their 40s and killing them. We know that we need to direct our resources towards where the problem is now, not stick by a former policy because we don't want to have egg on our face. Who cares? You know, a leader says, new information, new analysis, new strategy, let's go, let's apply new resources, let's pivot and get it done. And if we can't see that from this premier at 2 o'clock this afternoon, I mean, like many people, I stopped watching the Daily Stuff because I couldn't take one more folksy anecdote about what Doug Ford thinks is happening versus what his scientists are telling him. But today, I'm going to be watching, and I think the rest of the province will be too. Are we going to hear a common-sense pivot to what is necessary? And I bet you, I bet you, Bill, that a lot of people who don't have other, you know, underlying conditions would say, listen, Grab the tiered age thing. I'm 49 or 48. I can wait longer if you can get this stuff to the essential workers who need it, to the people who've been going out to the grocery store, who've been taking public transit, who have been making sure that I get my needs met for the last year. All those essential workers, prioritize them. The teachers, prioritize them. The healthcare care work. Everybody who has been serving the rest of us, the, those of us who can stay home in our little backyards, everybody who has been helping us, they get the vaccine. The rest of us, we can wait a little bit longer because we have to do what is effective and good leaders do what is effective, not what they think is popular and not what they think is going to make them look good
0: and it's always well we're going to get to it you know and the same thing with the long-term care and i know that you've you've been very passionate about that of course and and, and end of life care uh over in this province and their program says within the next two or three years we're going to be up to speed well no they're not uh when other provinces did it in a matter of seven or eight weeks these guys are going to do it like same thing with the vaccination of teachers they you know they, they made the acknowledgement yesterday yeah maybe we should prioritize them by the end of may or so we should get them done well that's the end of the school year laura what good does that do the teachers
1: I pulled my kids out of school, this is the third time since last March, I pulled them out ahead of the lockdown, or ahead of the school's closing, because I can do the math. I'm not great at math, but I'm good enough at math to know when, it be, when the threshold is so high that it doesn't make sense to send kids into a place where they're going to take off their masks to eat lunch together. I mean, it's not rocket science. You see them congregate outside of school with their masks off right afterwards. Why are we putting a bunch of people together in a community when we have the technology temporarily to survive a pandemic and having them work from home? It sucks. Remote learning is difficult. I've been doing it, as I said, with one of my kids all year, and the other one, keeps, I keep pulling them out of school. It's not easy, but we have to make sure that people don't die. I've never learned anything in school that was worth someone dying for. We can take them out for a little bit, get these teachers vaccinated during the April break. If we're going to bring our kids back to school at all, everyone who's working with our kids should have the vaccine it's only the fair and equitable and reasonable thing to do otherwise we just got to suck it up and get through this pandemic so i'm not sending my kids back until i know that there's vaccinations amongst the teachers and amongst the school staff until it's safe they're not going to go back i'll take the hit so that there's less kids in the classroom if that's what it takes to protect these teachers because i can do it but bill we cannot sit back and listen to leche say school safe because he thinks they are, or Ford say that schools are safe because kids should go because of mental health. Try having a kid responsible in any way of a teacher getting sick with COVID or losing someone. That's a far bigger mental health burden on a child than them being out of class for a few weeks with their friends. We can work around the schools being closed. What we cannot do is put people's lives at risk unnecessarily.
0: Well, I don't know when they're going to get the message. And, and uh, you know, to your point about pivoting, uh, I don't know that they have the capability of doing it. So, you know, like I can say, I, I and I think a lot of other people in this province have simply just lost trust in the government. And and these are the people that are supposed to be making decisions in a time of crisis. And this is a time of crisis. And they just have not been uh, up to the job. We'll see what happens later on today. Uh, Laura, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, you and the family, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Beth. Laura Babcock, of course, president of Power Group. And it's always interesting to get her perspective on this. I mean, her job essentially and what she does with Power Group uh, with so many of the clients is talk about, you know, how to get the message across, how to gain the trust of, of your clients. Well, we are the clients, and and the, and the provincial government and the federal government uh, are just not doing a very good job of communicating, and they're certainly not doing a very good job of, of looking after our best interest in this time of, of need. And and that's that's the overwhelming frustration I think a lot of us are feeling. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you got your vaccine yet? Have you tried to book it yet? I mean, it, it's had its bumps and, and bruises, people trying to get through in the system and everything, but we seem to be getting better at this. Uh, there is some concern about the AstraZeneca vaccine, though, of course. I, I actually had barbecuing last night uh, doing some hot dogs out in the back and my neighbor stopped by and said, look, what's your read on this? And I said, well, you get any vaccine you can. Uh, and he said wow well what about those concerns and i said well there are no reported canadian cases what they're talking about of course is the potential for blood clotting uh, with some people and uh, there were some reported cases of that in the uk and in uh, some of the european cities uh, but not in canada so far uh, but uh, they're being cautious nonetheless of course ontario's top doc uh, dr david williams uh, says that uh, they are now recommending of course that the astrazeneca vaccine uh, be for anybody who is 55 and younger uh, hold off on that 55 and over you're probably okay Okay, uh, Global's of Carnegie has some of those details.
1: Because while there is a very rare incident, we want to make sure we're fully appraised on this. Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization is now recommending the move, citing concerns over reports of blood
2: clots. As you've heard, rare cases of serious blood clots have been recently reported in Europe following the use of AstraZeneca vaccine in that population.
1: Now Health Canada is demanding AstraZeneca do a detailed study on the risks and
3: benefits across multiple Canadian age groups. To date, no cases of these events have been reported in Canada.
1: Brianna Carnegie, Global News.
0: So there is research about what's going on right here, and it's happening at McMaster University, in fact. Uh, this lab is actually screening for this rare antibody that causes this. Uh, we're so pleased to be uh, welcoming to the program right now Dr. Isaac Nancy, who's the Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine and a Principal Investigator with the McMaster Platelet Immunology Laboratory. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm so glad you could be with us today.
2: Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about this, doctor, and the concerns. As I say, I had a neighbor just stop me yesterday and say, "Look, at what's what's the going? What's happening with this stuff? What do we know about this so far?" And and I, I guess obviously, before we can talk about th- what's really going on, we have to find out exactly the causation of this. And what 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 is happening with the people that are reporting blood clots, doctor?
2: Yeah, it, it seems like these reports are trying to uh, identify clots that are happening especially in the brain that's the information that is coming out of Europe now it's very important to point out that these are very very rare events that are uh, occurring
0: and, and let's let's talk a little bit about I know I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds about the medical explanations for this but but is is there any idea if, from what you've seen so far doctor as to why this is happening after they get this vaccine what period of time it is and what what we would the, those people that are experiencing this would actually see
2: yeah, I mean, the the it seems like it's happening on days between five and twenty after vaccination. Patients are experiencing some uh, some uh, some side effects that include, uh, you know, severe headaches, potentially seizures, blurred vision, um, abdominal pain, uh, some redness in their limbs. So that's what. Uh, Seems to be the, uh, the the clinical picture right now from from them, and that's prompting them to go uh, see their physicians so they can identify if this is the concern that we're uh, seeing that came out of uh, Europe.
0: Doctor, I, I understand it's actually got a name now. Is it VIPIT? Is is, is that an acronym for something, or is that just uh, is that the name that's uh, that's been given?
2: Yeah, So it sounds like this is the current name: uh, vaccine-induced prone. Thrombotic okay. immune thrombocytopenia, uh, which means it's induced by the vaccine. It creates this thrombotic or heightened clotting uh, environment in our body, and it's an immune. It's because of our immune system, and thrombocytopenia means low platelet count.
0: I, I, again, we should caution people that this has not been reported in Canada. It, it was in Europe, but I mean, you're doing the study uh, nonetheless. Because let's face it, I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of concern about what impact this might have. Uh, blood clotting, we should mention, by the way, is a very serious issue, isn't it? I mean, uh, we've we've heard, of course, of uh, that it can be fatal, but I mean, it can cause an awful lot of problems in the body when it occurs.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt about it, and that's what the lab and our uh, the McMaster Play Immunology lab specializes in are these immune-mediated clotting events. Uh, we're uniquely positioned uh, worldwide because we're one of uh, very few labs in the world that does basic science and is able to translate it all the way to uh, uh, to uh, clinical care and clinical uh, patient management, um, including all the hematology friends that are here at McMaster, but also in the country and, and the world. So... And that's what we do uh, at our uh, in our research program.
0: So this is uh, obviously the natural place for this to occur because you've already been studying this this idea for a while. And now, Doctor, from what you've heard from the reported cases from the UK and, and certainly from from Europe, uh, is is it similar to what the, the 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 research you've been doing on on this broader subject for the last little while? Is there is there something specific that's different about it?
2: Yeah. So from you know, one of, one of the biggest uh, uh, diseases we've studied is a disease called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. And th- this happens in the context of heparin, which is a blood thinner that people take, especially during major surgery. And a very few number of patients that actually um, get hit, they'll produce antibodies, and these antibodies uh, can activate the platelets in our body, which are responsible for normally responsible for stopping bleeding. But once these platelets are uh, activated, they develop clots in these patients. The nature of those antibodies seem to overlap based on preliminary um, information coming from Europe and some of the work we've already started doing here at McMaster. They seem to overlap with that disease. Now, the nature of the clots and the process of how the clot is produced and all that sort of stuff still requires further investigation but I mean that is the that's preliminary data and we're still looking into into uh, those effects with the astrazeneca induced uh, clots that um, are happening in very rare occasions
0: so, so this whole idea, of, as you say, clotting, which I know right off the bat sends alarm bells for some people, it's a naturally occurring phenomenon. I mean, if you get to cut the body out, it responds and, and tries to stop the bleeding of its own. Uh, but is there something about the vaccine that, 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 that magnifies that impact?
2: Yeah, it, it's a great question. And, and as of right now, uh, nobody knows. Um, well, I mean, I think the European Medicines Agency will be talking about it in the next few days. Um, but it seems like there might be a link between the, the vaccine and the clotting events. How this actually happens, how the vaccine actually induces our body's immune system to start producing these specific antibodies to cause the clotting is still unknown yet. And that's part of the process that we're going to, to do at MAC. I mean, uh, with the efforts of a lot of hematologists a lot around the country, and especially here out of Mac. There's sort of a national surveillance program right now to educate um, physicians uh, countrywide, uh, to inform them to send the samples to McMaster. Here at McMaster, we've already set up our tests to look at these um, uh, samples, diagnose them quickly, and inform the doctors so that they can take the proper procedures to, for, for uh, patient management. Uh, at the same time, we're, cl- we're collecting some clinical information on these patients so that we can link what we find in the lab with how they're presenting with their uh, physicians, and and that's basically what we do uh, at our lab at Mac. I mean, we link um, basic science to clinical management, and we try to draw uh, a big picture um, starting from the from the lab all the way to the
0: clinic. <laughs> Is age a factor of this? Do you know? I mean, I, I know you haven't, re- re- you know, reached all of your conclusions at this stage, but you know, there seemed to be some concern initially uh, when the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine was rolled out. Uh, at first, they thought it was going to be people over 65 that might be adversely affected. Now they're thinking it could be people under 55, and they're encouraging people to, you know, over that age uh, to go ahead and get it. But uh, uh, do we have enough data right now to be secure in, in that the the, the, way, the way that it's being rolled out now?
2: Yeah, and another great question. I mean, the risk factors leading to these clotting events due to AstraZeneca vaccine are really not known yet. I mean, it, it did present in females, mostly in females under the age of fifty in Europe, um, but you know, it, 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 whether whether that is a true risk factor or there are there are other factors that could be happening here, it's still not known. So it's hard to jump to conclusions. However, you would you would take that precaution. Um, you know, I I believe the agencies are recommending that it's not being given to anybody under 50, and that's because it presented in that age group, especially in Phoenix. That doesn't mean that that is a risk factor just yet, but potentially could end up being.
0: That's one of the things I guess we have to be careful of, isn't it, Doctor? I mean, a little bits of information uh, can be misleading in situations like that. Because I, I saw the same information that you did about uh, some of the European uh, reported cases of this, and uh, it, it's just said there was a, a predominant number of cases in females. Uh, but at the same time, you have to weigh that against the fact that, you know, it was uh, usually first responders and healthcare workers that got the first vaccines, uh, and the majority of people that received those vaccines were female. Uh, so is You're that right. what skewed, is that what skewed the number, or is it something that is predominant in females? You don't know yet, really, do you?
2: We we do not know yet. And and Dr. Pai from uh, from uh, Hamilton did mention that that you know these they gave the astrazeneca vaccine to uh, healthcare workers at that age group, which is dominated by females. Whether that is the true. Uh, uh, whether it was just a coincidence or it's a true risk factor still requires more investigation you got to remember there are very few cases worldwide mm-hmm. so it's really hard to make those links just yet
0: uh, and, and we also need to caution people because I know there's some people that are really actually now putting off their vaccination thinking, well, I don't want the AstraZeneca. Uh, that, that, you know, our, our Health Canada folks are still suggesting if you're over 55, go for it. It's fine. Uh, this is a, a, a precautionary thing and, and hopefully, uh, you know, we're going to get some hard and fast data on this so we can make these good decisions on, uh, based on the work that you guys are doing at McMaster these days. Uh, but you mentioned it was very similar to the, to a lot of the other studies that you were doing. Uh, For somebody who is dealing with blood clotting, uh, whether it's by AstraZeneca, which is yet to be determined, or anything else, what what kind of treatment would follow in a situation like that? Doctor, how would the patient and the individual who's dealing with it uh, proceed there?
2: Yeah, excellent question. I mean, right now the most important thing is that we actually recognize that there could be a clotting event that is associated with the vaccine. So as we do with all our uh, clotting diseases, time is of essence accuracy is of essence. So samples are going to come to McMaster. We're going to quickly screen them and identify whether they do have uh, the uh, the sort of antibodies that are seen in some of the diseases we deal with. And our job is to inform the physician of the results. And from there, there has been guidelines that have been published and there are multiple different type of uh, treatments that doctors can reach for Um, And, of course, under the guidance of uh, the recommendations that have been provided, they can proceed from there to adjust the treatment and ensure that the the patient um, um, reaches the, the proper recovery stage that they need to get to
0: i gotta ask you because this is something a friend of mine actually came up with yesterday who's concerned about this astrazeneca vaccine as well and i guess is due to get the shot in the next week or so uh most people and i shouldn't say most but a lot of people that i've talked to doctor that are on the north side of 65 uh as a habit take a baby aspirin every day as a, as a bit of a blood thinner and, and, and even if they're not told to by the doctor i mean it's it's something that's out there and a lot of people who are concerned about you know cardiac and issues etc like that do this uh and it, it dust in the blood, of course, that's what the baby aspirin is for on a daily basis. Is that something that could be used as a preventative measure for people that might be concerned about this?
2: I certainly cannot recommend that, not because it's not good or it is good, but there has not been enough data on that to say that it would be beneficial or it wouldn't. I think the proper thing to do is to get your vaccine. It's a very rare event. Um, Consult with your doctor. If you have any of these side effects, immediately talk to your physician. Um, we would need to identify whether you, what the status of this blood clot is before the physician can decide what kind of treatment you should be getting. So as far as the aspirin story, I'm not sure this is something that physicians will have to, uh, uh, physicians who are uh, conducting this health uh, care management will be the ones that would decide on. Uh, what the proper treatment would be
0: i think it's probably fair to suggest too that i mean anytime there's a medical procedure whether it's a vaccination an operation whatever there's always going to be a risk isn't there i mean you know we're, we're dealing with the human body and you know your body could react differently than somebody else's in a situation like that which is why i'm, I'm sure anybody who's listening who's undergone any surgery over the last 20 or 30 years knows that there's a waiver that you sign saying i'm aware of the fact that there is a risk of you know anesthesia or anything else like this and the same thing is with vaccines we can't absolutely 100 percent guarantee what the reaction is going to be within any individual's body can we
2: that's very correct I mean every every drug most most drugs out there do have side effects we take them with precaution we monitor ourselves for uh, adverse reactions to them and if we do have adverse reactions we contact our physicians and try to find out exactly uh, what the next steps would be it's no different with AstraZeneca vaccine as it appears right now the vaccine is very effective and has very, very rare side effects as of right now. The numbers look like they're... The reality is that the benefits of the vaccine far outweigh the risks of this clotting event. There is a very good chance, there's a way better chance that you would get COVID, end up in the hospital with clots than you would by getting clots by being vaccinated. Being vaccinated will provide you with the protection you need against uh, the COVID uh, disease
0: so well as one of your colleagues from mcgrast told us on this program last week doctor he says yes there is a risk of, of clotting with astrazeneca uh, but it's about the same risk as getting struck by lightning on your way to the hospital to get the shot i mean it's it's there you know let's not kid ourselves but it's rare and, and i think the numbers actually tell a story there too don't they i mean if you're looking at the uk and the european numbers and there's a handful and i think it was 25 or 30 something like that cases that's out of over 17 million people that got vaccinated so i mean we we need to put this in perspective don't we
2: there's no doubt about it. I mean, I, one of the reports I read yesterday seemed like it was one in two hundred thousand. But if, again, as we recognize it more and more, the numbers will change. It's fluid, but again, it is a very rare uh, side effect. And and of course, you know, because of public alarm, there's more concern about getting the vaccine. But the the benefits outweigh the risks by by fold. So get get the vaccine. Get the vaccine. Get the vaccine you can get as soon as possible.
0: Uh, you guys are the experts in this. I mean, which is why obviously they looked at McMaster to try to get some answers on this. Uh, I, I know that you can't put a, a timeline on science, Doctor, but I mean, are you confident that you're going to uh, find some some uh, some data here that's going to be conclusive that you can make some judgments on sooner than later?
2: Yeah, as soon as uh, the samples start uh, coming into uh, Mac, we'll be able to quickly identify the nature of if, if, if these antibodies are present or not. And once we identify them, we can uh, inform the physicians to take proper treatment. Now, uh, there hasn't been cases reported in Canada, but because of the suspicion, there will be more suspicion of clotting to AstraZeneca than there will be actual Due to AstraZeneca. So, there will be samples coming into the lab. I'm going to guess the majority of them will be negative, but that's important to know so the doctor can actually proceed accordingly. And for the very few cases, um, again, the most important thing is now we recognize that this can happen and we can diagnose it. And once we diagnose it, the procedure to treat the patient becomes uh, automatic.
0: Absolutely. Well, reassuring to get information about this as opposed to some of the speculation that's been floating around these days. Uh, So glad you could spend some time with us this morning, Doctor, and uh, continued good luck with you and your colleagues and the great work that you're doing at McMaster to try to get some answers to this. Thanks so much for this today.
2: Thank you for having me. And I just want to give a quick shout out to the entire research program we have because they've been working day and night since the onset of the pandemic. These people are absolutely amazing. But thank you for having me and uh, let's hope for the best
0: world-class work that's going on right at mcmaster university thanks again doctor take care dr isaac nazi of course associate professor in the department of medicine at mcmaster in the uh, platelet immunology laboratory and uh, obviously uh, very important stuff and and i think hopefully that's allayed a lot of the concerns that some people might have about this vaccine and it falls right in line with a lot of the other doctors is telling us at the same time just get the shot okay uh the chances of something happening are very very slim uh, not you know 100 percent guaranteed nothing in life is but uh, they'll get some answers for us. you know they will with the work that they're doing you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml i want to talk about a very very controversial piece of legislation and and policy that the ontario government is is trying to put forth right now uh, and that is offering what they call a choice uh, for full online schooling and uh, it's raised a lot of red flags for a lot, of, an awful lot of educators. And, you know, the, the argument we brought up last hour about the fact that, uh, you know, I think there's a legitimate case to be made that the government's not listening to the experts in these fields uh, is somewhat problematic for me and, and I think for an awful lot of other people, too, vis-a-vis vaccinations, who should be getting vaccinations, but also in the education field. And that may well be because this government, uh, more than maybe the previous government, uh, seems to have an aversion for dealing with educators. So there's, there seem to be, you know, the, they're the ones in the black hats, and that's the way they try to portray them, which is wrong, by the way. Uh, but it might be something that's, that's, that's coloring their opinion about moving forward on this. Uh, you know, the debate here is, well, should our children be in classrooms, or is online education just as good? Uh, interesting piece in uh, the conversation that you should check out, uh, theconversation.com, by the way, a uh, great website to get some, some opinions about some of these uh, very, very uh, poignant t- topics and and, uh, and give you, I think, the perspective you need to make an informed decision about this. Uh, and to that end, and to deal with this whole idea of this policy that the government is putting forward right now, we are pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Lana Parker, who is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Windsor. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today.
3: Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, I'm glad you had some time for us today, because I tell you, if if I had a buck for every time some parent has contacted me over the last year now and said, I can't do this, I'm not a teacher, I was not trained to be a teacher, Uh, you know, I can help with some rudimentary stuff, but they're feeling an awful lot of pressure, some of them have had to take time off work because of this homeschooling, Uh, and then you've got people in the education ministry, uh, professor, that are simply saying, no, online learning is great, it's the future. Uh, What's your stand on this? What, What do you see happening?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question, and, you know, at the forefront of it is the underlying question, uh, why now? Why this? Why now? Um, and the, the legislation you described, um, just a few minutes ago that the government is proposing to introduce to make fully online learning an entrenched part of public education in Ontario does not seem to have, um, uh, any kind of real data or evidence that they've cited to support it. Um, so, you know, that that sentiment from parents, it, I think it's understandable given the fact that we have, in a global pandemic, educators who have been asked to, I think the word they're using here is pivot, uh, pivot to online learning and uh, to do the best that they can for students. It's, it's far from ideal conditions, um, but it is, you know, it is... Uh, as a consequence of the emergency we find ourselves in. Um, On the other hand, we have this idea of a policy becoming entrenched and becoming part of the landscape. And I think that's really where we have to take a moment's pause uh, and have some healthy conversation around the question of why. Would this be good for students?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I might take a little more cynical point of view than, than you have, uh, Professor, <laughs> uh, because I'm wondering if this is just a consequence of the of the of the pandemic, or is it them taking advantage of the of the pandemic to to uh, push forth with a uh, with their own agenda? Because you may recall, and I, I know you do, but I want to remind our listeners: long before this pandemic was even in anybody's consciousness, uh, this government was already moving towards mandatory online courses in schools, and there was a lot of pushback on that because, as to your f- point from a minute ago there's no data to substantiate that it's any better for students or that's even as good for students yet they were they they backed away from that but they didn't say they weren't going to do it they just said we'll hold off on the implementation uh the cynic in me says they're looking at this as an opportunity to move forward with that agenda
3: yeah you know i think yesterday uh there was some conversation and uh, questioning about whether or not this proposal is really about a cheaper education <laughs> uh you know that I think Steve Pacon on the agenda had Annie Kidder on, and they were talking about yeah. this very question. And the motivation, the rationale for this policy, I think that that's really at the heart of some of the concerns. It, it, is this a policy that is designed to help students in Ontario become more successful, uh, to help them learn better, or is this a policy that is designed to... Um, funnel costs out of public education, uh, and to reduce the amount of funding that school boards get uh, over the short, medium, and long term, and uh, as the document indicates, uh, to create alternative revenue generation sources. So, you know, one of the things that I think your listeners should should consider uh, and to think about um, is, why do we need public education to produce streams of revenue? you know, the government document that the Globe and Mail obtained talked about um, selling curriculum and, you know, this potentially becoming a form of revenue generation. So, you know, at the heart of the question, and much before this becomes legislation, I think we need to understand what is at the root of this? Would it actually produce better outcomes for our students, or would it produce some unintended harms and consequences? And I have real concerns about that second question. Would there be some unintended consequences and harms that we start to see two, three, four years down the road?
0: And and I share those concerns, and I think most parents do as well. But uh, I I want to go back and... and, and put some more meat on the bones about what you were talking about motivation because I still think that's a, a key part of this discussion here uh, because I, I read the document that the Globe had of course a couple of weeks ago uh, and Annie Kidd of course has been a guest on this program many times so Steve for that Majesty Steve Bacon and we've talked about the education process here I'm, I'm not comfortable with this government monetizing education uh, they basically what they seem to be doing here, and they don't deny this is basically trying to develop a model for this and sell it to other jurisdictions and say here's a cheaper way to educate your kids where you're going to save all kinds of money they don't talk about how effective it's going to be they're just going to say it's a cheaper model which tells me professor that that the cost is is really what's driving this in other words we're trying to save a few bucks in education and this is the way we're going to do it
3: yeah i i mean i think that's a real concern Uh, you know we can see that uh our, our education public education as a public good uh does need some protection and preservation right uh, when we it's it's not something that we can take for granted any more than it is uh, for us to take for granted uh, our, our public health care system and I think you know we have seen in the last year the value of what our health care workers do uh, in moments of extreme duress and I, I think the same thing is true for any public good so when we have a government that has indicated that there will be cuts uh, to funding. You know, So um, in an article I wrote for the conversation last year, uh, one of the things I talked about was documentation that noted um, intended cuts to school boards coming down the pipeline. So we've got that coupled with this idea of curriculum sales and creating revenue. It's very difficult to not suspect that the motive at the heart of this is really about cheaper education and about creating a business model. And in fact, uh, that's the language that's used in the document, right? So the document does talk about uh, a business plan with TVO, and uh, the description that's provided is to suggest that fully independent learning would be uh, conducted with little teacher support. And yeah,
0: put that in brackets because that's a key part of this. They're they're being blatant about it here, aren't they?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I think that they perhaps are counting on. Uh, some pandemic distraction. (laughs) Uh, You know, that's part of the fear, I think, at this moment, that sometimes uh, when we're all looking in one direction, fretting about vaccines, uh, rightly so, (laughs) and worrying about the global pandemic, that there might be, uh, you know, pieces of legislation that come into effect that uh, will cause real problems down the road that don't get the due diligence of public debate, perhaps, because we are in this, you know, this fraught moment of, of a pandemic. So... Um, Yeah, it may well be seen as an opportunity to introduce what might otherwise be a controversial policy at a time when the public is distracted.
0: Well, or, you know, of the mind that, okay, I guess we need to do something, and I guess this is what the government's offering. But there's no proof uh, and no data to substantiate their claim that this is uh, as, as good as or better form of education. Uh, you know, when the, the key words here are, as you say, monetizing education uh, with little teacher support. And, and any time anybody pushes back, and I asked the education minister about this a few months ago uh, when when this policy rose up in the Globe and Mail article, of course, became public information. Uh, and, and, and they don't have a substantive answer to this I mean they're basically just saying look at uh you know this is a great model, and it's going to save us an awful lot of money. Uh, there are some things that you know we we don't necessarily uh, you know want to just throw money at, but at the same time you want to get maximum buck bang for your buck in situations like that. And I would think public education has to be one of them. Uh, they seem to be moving more towards a model of private education. And anybody who pushes back on this is anti-government and pro-teacher. Those are just a bunch of union people that want to make life v- difficult for for government. That seems to be the way that they're characterizing them. And and I'm sure you've seen the feedback on this, too, Professor. <laughs> a lot of people buy into that simply because they figure, oh, well, the teachers are just, you know, they only work six months of the year. They get all kinds of summertime off and making all kinds of money. Uh, and and I think they're playing to that card right now and, and to that characterization right now to try to move forward with this agenda.
3: Yeah, that may well be so, and that would be, you know, that's that's really a pity because um, our I think our educators, uh, and I think parents, you know, you said at the top of the show that, uh, you, you, if you had a buck for every parent who's t- called in or spoken to you about how difficult it's been to have um, online and remote learning with the kids at home, I think we have a much better appreciation now for what teachers do on a day-to-day basis with, you know, the 25 or 30 students that they have in their classroom. And so, you know, I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, I guess, that one of the outcomes of the pandemic might be that we have Uh, a bit more appreciation for some of the um, complexity of the work of teaching and learning. You know, it's not, it is not a straightforward process. Uh, Teachers are responsible for getting to know students, uh, forging relationships with them, building environments where each student can find an opportunity to express what they know in ways that are suitable to them and unique to them. And You know, that's not to say that online learning can't facilitate some of it, especially well-designed online learning that's been given some thought and care. But I have doubts about why we need fully online as a choice, because it doesn't seem like there's any demand for it. It doesn't seem like there's a a rationale, I would say like a pedagogical or a teaching and learning rationale for it, other than uh, what's been put forward as a business plan.
0: But in the piece that uh, that's in the conversation, uh, the lightest one that you put in here anyway, uh, you also talk about the impact it's having on students. And and and, and I've, I've got a problem with the government because I don't think they listen to the medical experts when they're developing policies, like shutdowns and things like that. But they're certainly not listening to the medical experts when it comes about how this is going to impact students. And you just touched on a couple of these things. And it's not just so they can have friends and be social. Uh, it's about interaction. It's about the exchange of ideas that goes on in a classroom uh, you, that you can't replicate online. It's just not the same. And any teacher who's worth their salt will tell you that, that, you know, this is an interim step because of a problem with the pandemic, but it's not the long term solution yet. That seems to be the way the government wants to move.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, at the start of, um, I was conducting some research in schools at the, at, at just big, about the pivot point last year when schools had to shut down in April. And so I was having conversations with teachers and with students who were talking to me about um, how the online environment was a little bit more challenging for them to manage because they didn't feel the same sense of collegial support uh, or relationship in that they did when they're part of an in-person community. And so, you know, one of the questions that I think we're thinking about is what does it mean you potentially lose that sense of community if a student is fully online. You know, schools offer things, the arts, uh, extracurricular activities, sports, um, ability to do experiential learning, hands-on. So much of that does take time and effort. It does take a little bit of money, but it's at the heart of what makes our public education system, I think um, a a good one (laughs) is that we have committed to providing those opportunities to all students. Um, And so it would be a a real pity uh, to move to a model of fully online learning without research that examines unintended consequences and harms, along with any potential benefits. Because, Bill, I will say one thing about education policy. It's (laughs) Once it comes into effect, it's very, very difficult to reverse course. Uh, so it, it, it's it's really important that we take a moment to understand what the unintended consequences could be and how they might be mitigated if we chose to move forward with this as an option. Uh, because the early data that is emerging is certainly uh, that students working fully online, uh, you know, and I understand why we need to for an emergency situation in a pandemic, so I'm not addressing that, but for long-term, um, students, you know, might feel more isolation. Uh, they might be differently compelled uh, to, to do things. For example, there was a study that showed that female students uh, during the pandemic were, were, were doing more housework <laughs> at some points than schoolwork. Um, there's studies out of higher education that show that fully online students are sometimes more prone to dropping out. And, and wouldn't that be a tragedy, right? In five years to learn that a policy that's come into play um, is producing those kinds of harms.
0: Well, and they are, and I know you outlined that. There's, there's concerns about mental health, about physical health, and, and again about uh, the individuals themselves and how they respond to this. I, I wish we could pursue this, and I, I want to at a further date, uh, but I'm going to encourage our listeners uh, to, to read your piece in the in the, the conversation, uh, because I think it, it really drives home some points that we need to consider in this discussion and in this debate, uh, and the government really has to come up with some answers before they decide they want to move forward on this. Uh, a, a pleasure to have you back on the program, Doctor. Thank you so much for this. Uh, keep doing Doing what you're doing, and I, I know we'll talk again down the road about this.
3: I really appreciate your time, uh, Bill. Thank you very much, and have a great morning.
0: You too. Take care. Dr. Lana Parker, of course, from the uh, Faculty of Education at the University of Windsor. Go to Conversation.com and uh, read the piece that she submitted. And uh, I think it gives you a much different, I think a much better perspective on what could be happening here in the province of Ontario vis-a-vis education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon